Hello and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Insights. This week, I'm joined by our news editor, Rob Leeming. Hi, Chandwa. And together, we'll be discussing investment trends that we've noticed in the past week in the renewable space, the future of the energy market, and prices related to an increase in renewables penetration, as well as a discussion around auctions that have closed recently. But as usual, we will begin with our weekly news coverage. And for that, I'll ask Rob to take us through. Um, thank you, Chendwa. Um, yeah, there's been a few noteworthy um, deals this week. Um, perhaps to start first with um, broadband that we write about from time to time. Um, this week, Gresham House um, announced that they're, they're going to be making an investment of around um, 50 million in the ISP um, Wildernet. Um, basically, they've, they have a history of um, investing in uh, broadband connections or building broadband networks in um, areas of the country which are more rural. Um, I think they're currently developing a network in Cornwall and they're um, advancing into Devon at the moment. Um, and um, it's long been the case that um, internet service providers don't want to invest in broadband connections in, in rural areas because it just basically doesn't make them money. Um, so you're getting a lot of areas that are going um, kind of that are being neglected and uh, internet speeds are falling behind. Um, and uh, Gresham House, um, which aren't they're not really known very much for investing in, in, in broadband, they're more known for investing in battery storage, but they have made a few um, investments now, a couple of investments in these companies that um, are focusing on, on investing in, in rural areas. Um, for example, at the start of 2022, um, they said they were investing $164 million in Borderlink, uh, a broadband provider that serves um, rural residents and businesses in, in Scotland, Cumbria and Northumberland. So now quite a trend developing at Gresham House where they want to um, invest in, in these rural broadband companies. Um, both of these investments were made through the, uh, through the company's business, um, through the company's British Sustainable Infrastructure Funds 1 and 2, um, two closed-ended funds, um, which I think the first one closed in 2020 with 300 million and the second one closed in September 2021 with 100 million uh, to spend. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether that trend continues and uh, they invest in some more of these uh, very interesting um, ISPs that are looking to advance broadband networks in rural areas. Yeah, interesting to see that they are seeing opportunities in that infrastructure asset class. And for sure, uh, let's see whether this trend will continue in the future with Gresham House and, and others in the industry. Yeah, definitely. And quite benevolent, I suppose, as well, that they're willing to kind of look at some of these underserved areas because they, I guess, deserve as good internet connections as everybody else. Um, the Another news story um, that was quite popular on the website this week. Um, so another big deal this week that's been quite popular on the uh, Inspiration website is Next Energy hitting a first clause on um, its fifth investment vehicle, Next Power 5 ESG. Um, the first clause is worth um, around 1.4, 1.5 billion. Um, the fund's got a 
uh, two billion hard cap, so they have a, a little bit more to to raise. Uh, first clause commitments to um, the fund amounted to four hundred and eighty million, um, com- comprising three hundred and thirty million in in direct commitments and one hundred and fifty million in core investment. Um, allocations. Um, some of the investors included KLP, um, a German occupational pension fund, um, and another Nordic uh, pension fund, with the name of which has not yet been um, confirmed. Um, Inspiration talked to um, uh, Next Energy's capital managing director Shane Swords who said the fund is a direct follow up from our previous um, OECD fund and is essentially a carbon copy of of that fund um, focusing on investing in the same geographies and targeting returns of uh, 13 to 15 percent. He added the fund focuses specifically on the solar market with batteries deployed in on a co-located basis um, where it makes sense. Um, the fund has pinpointed several key markets um, so far, um, including the US, Spain, Portugal, Chile, Poland and Greece. And uh, Fund 5 is expected potentially to add to those geographies Italy and um, and Canada. Yeah, the strategy is particularly well thought out in that the regions they're targeting, so Chile, USA, Spain, Portugal are the same regions we're seeing in our PPA database, which, Mm. at least in the first half of the year, have been the most popular. And in previous discussions you've had on Inspiration, talking about the possible returns you could get from solar projects uh, on PPAs or on merchant projects, uh, I I mean, in those regions at least, is is quite attractive. And also, on top of that, a further discussion which we'll have in just a minute about negative pricing and how storage could assist in that, um, so it, it's it's quite quite interesting that that they are focusing on projects which are co-located with battery storage, and uh, yeah, that that can only be a smart smart move in the long term. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how we're seeing more and more co-located uh, projects being announced practically every week now, because people have seen the virtues of that of that system. Another story um, that we've uh, picked to cover this week is about. Um, SP Energy um, announcing that they're, they're building a, um, a digital twin of the uh, transmission network that, that that company runs. We've covered um, digital twinning um, from time to time, um, and it's interesting to see another another big company op- op- opting um, to to use it. Um, so basically the the kind of the the twinned version of the network will be used to trial digital solutions to a to a range of problems from managing increased electricity demand to um grid balancing um basically if you, if you don't know about it um a digital twin is a a digital version of something in the real world um which may be an asset uh, process or system um the digital twin is is then it's designed to communicate with its physical um partner via um exchanges of data in order to enhance performance 
it's not the first time that kind of big UK infrastructure um, developers have opted to create these kind of digital twins. In 2021, for example, National Grid announced plans um, to create a digital twin of the UK's entire energy system. Um, and this was followed by developers working on the HS2 project, the big rail link that's being built between um, London and Birmingham. They, they announced that they were building sensors into new physical infrastructure on the project that would be used ultimately to create a, a digital twin of the railway. And then a few months ago, Transport for London also announced that they were developing a digital twin of the London Underground Network, again, to kind of model um, new developments that they might want to launch. There. Mm, for sure. And I think this is, at least in the electricity markets, what GB particularly is, is quite important, seeing that there's many discussions happening right now and what the future design of the energy market would look like or the energy system would look like in 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 in, in the uk uh but yeah these digital twins definitely very important to help with high level decisions on on such huge infrastructure projects yes i wish i had one and another story that i wanted to m uh, mention was um gravis infrastructure fund um announcing this week that they're going to back UK electric vehicle charging. I think it could be said that investment in the charging sector has perhaps slowed down a little bit in um, in recent months as um, investors kind of wrestle over whether they think that, that when the EV um, uptake comes, whether people are going to rely charging, um, whether they're going to charge more at home um, or on a public network. It seems to me that sensible to think that they would probably charge at home rather than... Um, rather than relying too much on, on public infrastructure. Nevertheless, Gravis um, said that they're going to invest in um, Solar Catcher, um, which is a company that develops solar-powered EV charging solutions. Basically, they, de they develop canopies that go over chargers, um, canopies that have solar panels on top, that the, and the, the energy is then channeled uh, into the uh, chargers. And of course, when the solar canopy is not being used, then the electricity generated can be used to um, power nearby buildings and the Gravis UK Infrastructure Investment Fund was set up in 2016. Um, it's raised around 700 million. Um, I don't. I don't think it doesn't look like they've made too many EV charging investments in the past, um, but they have invested in solar. They've made a big investment in Bluefield uh, Solar Income Fund um, a few few months ago. Now they invested 39.1 million. So, mm. for sure, uh, interesting to see that. EV infrastructure investment has taken a slight downturn. Um, but I suppose in the future, I mean, every year on year, um, the proportion of EVs on the road increases. And I believe the EU announced a, 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 a ban on, on, on new internal combustion engine sales um, in 2035. So yes, you can only assume that uh, the demand for EV charging will, will, will increase in the future. Um, so... Yes. I think this is just a short downturn and there'll be a bounce back for sure. I think EV charging infrastructure will definitely become some sort of core infrastructure investment in the future. Uh, but let's see the the progression of, of, of this asset class. Yeah, for sure. Although I did see, I saw one story this week, I think it was some people in the Conservative Party who were saying that they uh, wanted to try and water down the, the deadline that the government currently has to ban petrol cars by 2030. I've always thought, thought that might end up being 
watered down, but I guess it depends who's the government at the time. And the uh, last story that I wanted to talk about um, was the Crown Estate um, this week announcing a range of new modifications to the upcoming Celtic Sea offshore floating wind capacity leasing round, which is uh, expected to be launched probably later this year. The aim of the process is ultimately to try and get four gigawatts of floating capacity under development in four sections of pre-identified parts of the of the Celtic Sea. Um, but as a result of the new regulations, bidders will have to commit to how they plan to organise port management as well as the assembly of um, wind turbines. Interestingly, bidders will also have to give the Crown Estate commitments that they can manage the technology and um, and uh, the manufacturing necessary to, to get the foundations for floating turbines um, in place. Because, of course, we have to um, remember at the moment that floating offshore technology is still largely untested at scale there's a few there's a few smaller projects but not not big ones um and supply chains are, are still quite quite weak and in their infancy um so you know the, these companies are going to have to reassure the crown estate that they can get these projects um built to try and um you know de-risk uh, a process that still has its quite you know some big bag Bags full of risk, you might say. Huge bags. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. I think uh, it was Oliver and I who had the discussion last week. We were talking about uh, operations, maintenance, and uh, development concerns of floating wind. And I like that the Crown Estate is, is making this a priority. I think, you know, last week the discussion was around the two ideologies in which developers might fall for the development of floating offshore wind. And that's, you know, if you're in Camp 1, do you fund- fundamentally believe in in-situ operations? So that's floating to floating construction, floating floating maintenance. Or do you believe in towed to quayside facilities? Uh, so these are various concerns that are making these projects risk- risky. And I think the Crown Estate is forward-thinking in, in, in placing these conditions to, as you said, de-risk these projects. Uh, it's an interesting space and I'm very keen to follow and see what happens. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the people that I've talked to in this kind of sector over the last few months have said, well, in about in about 10 to 12 years or so, you're going to look at floating being a mainstream sector, but which is about the same length of time it took for offshore wind to become get to the same um, position, but it's it's in the it's in the short term. It's in the next four or five years that you're going to see these risks, and you know some projects are going to work out, and some projects are going to are going to fail, as we're already seeing. Just to keep on that offshore wind theme, I just wanted to quickly discuss another geography, and that's Japan. Um, they recently closed the bidding of their second offshore wind leasing round, which was a big talking point. Uh, because the first leasing round was a bit controversial with Mitsubishi winning everything with close to zero with with bids that were close to zero um was there anything that changed in this auction round um is there anything interesting that you can tell us rob um well i mean i think you you've got to look at um some of the potential uh bidders in this i think there's there's some oil majors again looking to 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 take a part in it um, 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 and other companies such as Macquarie, Iberdrola, and and Equinor. So once again, uh, some big international players are, are, are lining up uh, 
um, for this. Um, but it'll be interesting to see again whether it's it's Japanese companies that that dominate. I should probably think not. I mean, you know, we would think that 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 if they did pick Japanese companies again, um, that that process might start to lose a little bit of its of its luster, I guess, and relevance. That perhaps people will just some of these bigger companies will start to back away from it and 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 think that well, it's just going to be Japanese companies that are going to play. Mm. I think I fall in a different camp. Um, I mean, Japanese companies have their own supply chain. They've got their own banks, and they've got their own expertise. So I don't see why they they wouldn't win these rounds. Uh, but I think the way in which they win these rounds should be fair. Um, and let's see if if the bidding will will, will be fair or not. Um, I think that the meat lies in the way projects are assessed and if people aren't happy with the way projects are assessed then yeah maybe it might lose its luster but at the end of the day i do think that there is a lot of expertise in japan um both on a technical and financial side yeah. um so let's see how the international players can compete can compete with the local players um so now i think it might be a good time to talk about um electricity markets um what have you been learning about this week Absolutely. The thing that's caught my attention this week has been day ahead markets. And because in the last few years, renewable penetration has been quite high, we're seeing a new phenomenon um, of negative prices in various EU markets, as well as in the UK. No, um, I've I've heard about negative prices before, but maybe you could give me a little bit of an explanation what it means. Yeah, for sure. So negative energy prices arise from a disparity between supply and demand. In the past, this wasn't a significant concern um, when the energy system relied on large fossil fuel plants and and maintaining a balance was relatively straightforward at that point. But in today's market, with the integration of of, of more renewable sources, um, solar and wind, um, it becomes much more difficult to, to regulate the supply of energy with the demand of energy at, at, at any given time. And so at periods of abundant sunshine or abundant wind, there's an excess of electricity supply. Um, and this results in a net cost to inject electricity into a grid. And this is essentially um, what negative hourly prices are. Um, it's a balancing cost that grid operators have to pay um, to regulate supply and demand. Um, so are there, are there any examples of any kind of um, drastic and dramatic negative pricing in, in the EU at the moment? Yeah, for sure. And it's no surprise that this comes in markets with large, with high renewable penetration. So uh, in the Netherlands, and so, you know, just for, for context, in, in 2021 in the Netherlands, there were 70 instances of negative hourly prices. And this rose to 85 in 2022. But as of May 2023, there have already been 105 um, negative hourly prices, um, with 49 occurring in May alone. And we can see this because the proportion of electricity generated from solar and wind surpassed 50% in May. And during the past weekend we just had, so 1st to, to 2nd July, um, the surplus was so substantial that the day ahead price was negative 500 euros per megawatt hour and as as the share of wind and solar continues to grow this will pose a challenge to balance supply and demand and and because of this 
um, represents a, a, a significant obstacle to a, a achieving the energy transition. Uh, this trend complicates the financial viability of solar and wind projects uh, because of cannibalization effects, which exacerbate the situation and potentially diminishes um, the attractiveness of the business business case. Uh, so how can we address this um, moving forward in, in order to maintain the attractiveness of renewables? So at present, um, the method which is used well, a, a popular method which is used is, is curtailment to match supply demand. If we look at the UK's historic wind curtailment um, from 2021 to 2023, so in 2021, curtailment of wind energy amounted to, amounted to about 2.3 terawatt hours, and that cost the national grid about £143 million pounds. And in 2023 to date, so just the first five months, uh, we've already seen 1.3 terawatt hours curtailed for a total cost of 93 million pounds. So at the moment, it's a lot of curtailment, but in the future, and I think we did touch on this in the news just now, in the future, the need for battery storage only becomes that much more important because, as you said before, this is a balancing act of supply and demand. And if it's not... If it's not financially viable to simply turn off a wind farm or solar farm, the next best thing is to store that energy in times of excess supply. And that's why battery storage now becomes that much more important, because it can be addressed quickly and effectively. So the, the feasibility of developing a solid business case for individual applications of batteries is increasing. Uh, and we're seeing batteries perform much better in capacity markets, albeit with the need to, to, to value stack still. And I think Inspiration did write an article about uh, value stacking um, last year. Um, so what is the future of, um, of batteries now as we kind of move forward? Battery storage can be employed not only on an individual scale, like we've talked about in the news with solar projects intending on being co-located with battery storage, but also on a systemic level, and this, this systemic level is, is that much more important. So by integrating hundreds of megawatts of battery capacity into the grid, any surplus energy from wind and solar parts can be temporarily stored to mitigate and minimize negative hourly pricing. So another, approach is, another approach to storing excess energy is its conversion into hydrogen. And Oliver would talk a lot about this. It's a shame he's not here today, but he'll perhaps talk about this next week. But there are energy losses in the hydro in hydrogen production. Uh, well, that was very, very technical answer and interesting. Are there any uh, regulation changes that are going to go along with this? Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I remember in February or March, the EU announced its intention to, to change the, the electricity market system um, EU-wide. And one of the intentions was to optimize... The, function of, the functioning of short-term markets by reducing the minimum bid size for intraday trading on day-ahead markets to 100 kilowatt hours, and at the same time, increase access to long-term PPAs and CFDs similar to the UK system. If there's more CFDs available in the EU, governments may have the option to revise conditions of upcoming auction runs in order to redefine negative price periods uh, and ensure that if the price befalls a certain, a certain threshold, 
no additional payments will be granted. Alternatively, if the price reaches about if the price reaches about zero euros, zero pounds per megawatt hour, only a reduced portion of of generated electricity will be eligible for payment, uh, which will be adjusted based on oversubscription or undersubscription during the auction. Any alterations to the regulations could introduce uncertainties regarding revenues from CFD projects. So we'll just have to wait and see if CFD conditions will change. And it's also important to note that there are various alternatives available, but policymakers will have to, as usual, uh, take pr- prompt action to, to, to address the potential issue of negative prices before gaming of negative price periods become, becomes an issue. So thank you so much for that news roundup, Rob, and the discussion we've just had about electricity markets. Thanks, Chinua. That wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Joint Venture Podcast. Thanks once again for that discussion, Rob. Thanks, Chinua. In two weeks, we'll be launching our half-year PPA report and have a look at PB activity in Europe and discuss the top markets. More details on that in two weeks. That is it for us. We'll be back with more news and analysis next week. Thank you for listening.